Chapter 11 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 Rio Segundo. On the morrow, we saddled betimes and rode through the town, or rather nucleus of a town, consisting as it did of a store, one other house, a pair of stocks, and a race course. We galloped over the plain, brighter and more beautiful after the rain. Here, by the monte of prickly bushes, under whose lee the grass was pressed down, showing where the wild beasts had crouched for shelter during the storm, here, by clumps of feathery pampa grass, and over greenest pastures, thickly dotted with the scarlet and purple blossoms of verbenas and polyanthi. A southwest wind blew in our faces, odorous of mint and vanilla and a thousand flowers, and fresh and invigorating after the norte of yesterday, dry and hot as it was from its passage over a thousand leagues of parched steps. Who can do justice to these glorious pampas, to the irresistible fascination of this vast expanse of grass and flowers, to the intoxicating delight of a gallop over them at breezy dawn, and to that peculiar quiet charm and sense of ecstatic calm that subdues even the most unimaginative man, when sitting by the evening encampment, he is a spectator of that magnificent appearance, a sunset on these ocean-like solitudes. There is no scenery, not even of the great mountains, that so overwhelms a man with a sense of his littleness, with a consciousness of what an immense unknown there is around him, as that of the South American steppes, where all nature is so vast and vague. Just before we entered the township of Villa Maria, which we had chosen as the destination of our second day's journey, we traversed a pretty wilderness of rank weeds, ten feet in height, all new to us, luxuriant of many scents and flowers, and noisy with the song of bird and hum of cicada. Riding through this, we suddenly came upon a strange scene worthy of the brush of a long. Dark between us and the golden sunset, there came towards us through the varied vegetation a troop of some thirty women, walking in slow and solemn procession. Dusky half-breeds and Indians, these, with their shoulders and raven hair covered with the black shawl of the country, and barefooted. Before them walked four girls, who bore a little gaudily painted image standing erect on a stretcher. This was a celebrated saint, who was now on his way to pay a visit to a neighboring saint, Every native likes, if possible, to have a little wooden saint of his own in his rancho. It is believed that these saints are of sociable disposition and like to meet each other at times. So, San Martin in Lopez's rancho is carried to visit Santa Rosa in Gonzales's rancho, an excuse for much caña drinking and gambling. Some of these saints are celebrated for the miraculous cures they perform. Such a one saint, for instance, is great at the curing of rheumatism. When this is the case, he is often a good thing to his owner, who lets him out to the sufferers at so much a day. A man will even pawn his saint sometimes, but this is looked upon as unlucky, and the saint has been known to lose his virtues after having been thus treated. The priests do not much encourage this system of private saints, they like to have a monopoly in them, I suppose, and to act as go-betweens to saints and sufferers. Far from my intention is it to ridicule any of the rites of the Roman Catholic Church, 
but the religion of the south american camps is not the roman catholic religion and none deplore this more than the educated dignitaries of the church at buenos aires but a superstition of the very grossest kind encouraged by an ignorant native priesthood which as mr bates says in his excellent work on south america on everything pertaining to morals and the ordinary decencies of life has its own opinions and ideas which are certainly somewhat at variance with those usually entertained in Europe on such matters. Villa Maria is an important little place, being at the junction of the Cordoba Railway and the new and yet unfinished line to Mendoza and the Andes. Here we pass the night in a hotel kept by Monsieur Albert, a Frenchman, who prepared for us a capital dinner that reminded us of Europe, and which was washed down with wines from the slopes of the Cordilleras, the vintages of Mendoza, Rioja, and San Juan, which are by no means despicable. We were now experiencing, for the first time, the attacks of that plague of the Pampas, the Bicho Colorado. This minute pest burrows into the lower half of the human leg, and there proceeds to lay its eggs under the skin. When the young bicho is hatched, he works his way out of his cradle to the outer world, a performance that produces the most intolerable itching. These little beasts do not attack one singly, but in hundreds, and in some cases produce nasty sores. But a wardiente or other spirits, well rubbed in, generally brings relief. On our third day, we rode to the camp railway station of Chañares, a distance of only 22 miles. But here we had to halt for the night, as a waterless, pastureless wilderness lay between this and the next stage, Laguna Larga, forty miles further on. This day we perceived a broad purple streak along the horizon, like a sea of blood. On approaching it, this proved to be thickly growing polyanthi, covering a vast area of plain. Not only a land of bichos is this, but of thorns. As we unsaddled our horses and lay ourselves under a big mimosa among the ants for our midday halt and siesta, we were made unpleasantly aware of how thorny a land we were approaching. The grass of this arid portion of the pampas is a very grass of the desert, stiff, hard, sharp as a needle. Every plant and bush and tree is covered with thorns. There are balls of seed, too, studded round with cruel needles like porcupines, if you pluck these, your hands are filled with the minute and irritating points. Some of these seed balls are as big as large plums and roll along with the wind. When they strike one's coat, they anchor themselves there and cling so tenaciously that in wrenching them away, much of the material of the cloth comes away also. Our poor horses did not seem to appreciate this sort of vegetation in the way of pasture, but the algarobas were covered with pods, which we plucked and fed them with, to their evident gratification. At Chañares, jovial Mr. O'Donohue, the station master, and his kind wife received us with true Irish hospitality. After our asado and pretis, unwanted luxury, we camped out for the night on the platform and slept the sleep of the just until midnight, when the train to Cordoba thundered in. Caramba! What a lot of passengers for Cordoba, I heard the guard say as he saw our prostrate forms. Ah, no, it's those yacht fellows, for I can see Don Arturo's nose peeping above his blankets. 
The guards of the trains, old English sailors, most of them, knew us by this time, and were wont to exchange greetings with us as we passed each other daily on the line. For the train runs to Cordoba one day, and returns to Rosario the next. That particular nose by which they recognized us this night was one of the great features of the falcon. Its owner is very proud of it, and indeed, once seen, it is not soon to be forgotten with its noble proportions colored by the suns of many climes. Our fourth day's journey was to Laguna Larga, a longer ride than usual. To one traveling over these plains, each day brings some new feature in the vegetation. This day we crossed a large space where grew a grass three feet in height, topped with the most lovely feathery seeds. These, waving in the wind, caused the plain to assume the appearance of a rolling sea of softest wool or down, a most pleasing and curious effect. We noticed how far more numerous the birds were in this region, where the pampas merged into the jungle, than in the treeless Santa Fe. Peewits, vultures, eagles, and many other varieties were here, while a vast multitude of green parroquets kept up the perpetual chatter over our heads. An immense cloud of martins, too, were flying north, doubtless emigrating from the impending winter of bleak Patagonia. A wonderful number of them. Many were resting a while on the telegraph wires. They crowded on them, sitting close together, fluttering and chattering, living festoons of birds stretching a league away. We then crossed a very parched district, waterless and treeless, where a strong stink of the skunk was the prevailing odor of the sultry air. Towards midday, we sighted right ahead a square black mass rising conspicuously over the level plain. This turned out to be a tank in which the scant water of a neighboring laguna is collected after rainfall in order to supply the railway engines. We called a halt, unsaddled our horses, and indulged in a welcome draught of water, brackish, muddy, and tepid though it was. A native was in charge of the tank. Beside the hut in which he lived, there was another wretched mud rancho, into whose roof a stick was thrust with a white rag flying at its summit, indicating that this was a grog shop. For even this ungodly, homeless spot in the wilderness must needs have its pulperia. It is astonishing how far off the thirsty traveler can distinguish that blessed white flag in the clear atmosphere of these level steps. We lit a fire by the tank, and bringing forth from our saddlebags some ribs of beef we had brought with us, pierced them with our iron asador spit, which we then stuck into the ground in the midst of the fire. Thus was soon ready for us that national dish of South America, the asado. A luxury it is, too, out in the camps, with the sauce of a healthy appetite. But an asado eaten with knife and fork, within doors, is hardly to be recommended. We washed this down with some caña from the pulperia, enjoyed a siesta, and then rode on to the station of Laguna Larga, where Mr. Wynne, the station master, who was expecting us, had prepared a good square supper for the travelers. This night, like the last, we passed on the platform comfortably enough. Early in the afternoon of our fifth day's ride, we reached the banks of the Rio Segundo, a river that rises in the Sierras of Cordoba and ultimately flows into the Mar Chiquita, an inland lake whose waters never reach the sea, but are absorbed by the thirsty wilderness. 
The Rio Segundo is here a broad, rapid stream of clear water flowing over a sandy bed. Extensive sandbanks border its edges, backed by banks overgrown with tall grasses and shrubs, a jungle inhabited by many pumas and parrots. We met a native who gave us instructions where to cross the river so as to avoid the quicksands. The water was low, so we found no difficulty in fording. This is by no means always the case. Many men and cattle are lost at this ford yearly. In a real crescente, it is, of course, quite impossible to effect a passage. These crescentes of the rivers of the Pampas are as terrible and sudden as those of South Africa. A few hours heavy rain in the far Sierras, and down comes the flood with a thunderous roar, sweeping all before it, bearing down on its swollen waters huge trees and drowned cattle and the wrecks of habitations. The water of this river is very wholesome and is strongly impregnated with the sarsaparilla that grows thickly on its banks in places. Having effected a safe passage, we gave our horses a rest while we indulged in the very unwanted luxury of a bath. For this purpose, we waded to a pretty willowy island in the middle of the stream. The little township and station of Rio Segundo is but a mile distant from the river bank. Here we pass the night. Mr. Mott, the station master, gave us much information as to the profusion of game in the neighboring montes. The pumas are almost the only sportsmen who revel in this grand hunting ground, where are to be found innumerable wood pigeons, parrots, three varieties of partridges, teal, snipe, duck, geese, tunas, ostriches, jaguars, deer, and many other beasts and birds. The next, our sixth day's march, was to be our last in the company of the railway line. We were no longer to have the certain hospitality of a British station master to look forward to at the end of each day's journey, for this night we were to reach the city of Cordoba. The Sierras now loom distinctly on the northwest horizon, refreshing indeed to the eye after these hundreds of leagues of unbroken plain. We greeted the hills once more with almost as keen a delight as the mariner the loom of land after a long voyage on the plains of the Salt Sea. The country between the Segundo and Cordova is of a very pleasing character. We had evidently left the Pampas proper at last, and were entering the region of the bush that stretches hence to the tropic forests of the north. We rode through groves of algaroba and beautiful flowering shrubs, carpeted with the variegated blossoms of verbena, polyanthus, and other plants. The land, no longer of a dead level, was slightly undulating. As we were galloping down the pleasant glades, one of us shouted in delight, Hurrah! Here is a peach tree covered with fruit! We all drew near, but were doomed to disappointment. It was but some poisonous plum of the monte, amber of hue and comely, but acrid in taste and not any kin to the familiar old fruit we had mistaken it for. At midday, we hobbled our horses, plucked some algarobas for them, and lunched off some sardines, biscuit, and caña we had brought with us. As I was sitting down, I suddenly perceived two bright eyes glaring at me from a large hole in the ground. I dropped my sardine and put my hand to my knife, not knowing what strange beast this might be, and what were his intentions. But I soon perceived that it was but an innocent, amiable creature after all, against whose character I have never heard any accusation brought. 
an unlovely scaly monster somewhat resembling an alligator yet inoffensive enough being only a poor iguana that was peeping out of his house with no evil design merely wondering what we intruders on his solitude might be i presented him with a bit of biscuit which accepting gratefully he retired unobtrusively into his house at last we reached a ridge overlooking a vast expanse of country to our astonishment for we were unaware that we had been ascending so much and never expected to see cordoba so far below us it was a magnificent view beyond the jungle that sloped downwards from where we stood there lay extended a vast level plain well watered with many silver streams bordered with rows of poplars arable fields and pastures stretched far to a distant range of grand mountains swelling range behind range lofty indeed they seemed to us after the interminable plains and indeed some of the summits of these sierras are seven thousand feet in height and in the center of this plain in the bend of a broad river winding out of sight into distant groves we perceived the fair white city with many domes and spires of churches some of a bright white stone others of marble others gleaming with gold to us coming straight from the wilderness this sudden first view of cordoba was as that of the delectable city to the worn pilgrim of that quaint history which is so delicious to the mind with its old world fragrance yes before us was the world-renowned cordoba the cordoba of the jesuit fathers the city of the churches and the ringing of bells the sanctimonious town of priests and doctors the oasis of learning in the wilderness in whose antique university how many generations of youth have acquired the aristotelian philosophy and all the humanities and inhumanities to boot if report be true a mysterious place this ancient stronghold of the much dreaded society of jesus in the heart of south america with a false learned and narrow-minded population to this day over which the priests have retained a great deal of their old power when the railway was first brought up to the gates of cordova the frailes felt that the old days had gone forever and that the dreaded light was coming the old order changing for the new in every church they preached fiercely against the accursed thing and had they dared would have urged the pious citizens to tear up the rails and curse the fatal iron way but let us linger no longer on the hill that overlooks the ancient city but ride boldly in more boldly far than we would have done in the olden days when the inquisition with its tortures awaited the heretic gringo who dared venture here from the ridge upon which we stood the track gradually widened until it became quite a decent road for cordova like all other cities in this land is a mere oasis of civilization in the wilderness its streets are continued as roads but a few hundred yards outside the town and then dwindled away to scarce distinguishable tracks as we descended we became conscious of a great and sudden change in the nature around us no longer the level plain so stoneless that one could not much as find the smallest pebble wherewith to threaten a snarling cur but here at the edge of the sierras the granite peeped out occasionally through the soil a country of rocks and of running water and where the feet of horses are shod with iron as is never the case of the pampas 
Across the road and alongside of it ran with much sound streams of clear sparkling water. We passed two huge wagons, slow, groaning horribly, drawn by oxen, wagons of hard red wood, in the construction of which no iron had been used, not even for one nail or tire of wheel, but the parts of which were lashed and laced together with thongs of rawhide. Our poor, unshodden horses of the Pampas were affrighted at the strange surroundings. They stumbled and shied at every step. Never had they before been down so steep an incline, felt such stony ground under their feet, or heard such sound of running water. There was a little water course that was carried across the road in a sunken wooden trough or canal, some eighteen inches broad at most. Though small, it babbled along noisily enough. The horses could not make this out at all. They sniffed at it suspiciously, shook their heads, became very uneasy, and refused to cross it. Ultimately, by dint of much persuasion of whip and spur, they did jump it. Each in his turn pulled himself together, took a tremendous leap, and cleared it by yards and yards. A ridiculous spectacle. The prudent creatures evidently we determined to make no mistake about it and give as wide a berth as possible to the uncanny phenomenon. There are no suburbs to this city. The wilderness stretches down to the edge of its medieval streets and squares. Just outside, it is true, there is a wretched sayentura of rubbish, offal, bones, broken bricks, and the like, among which, like jackals, dwells a miserable pack of squatters, a low type of half-breeds, hideous and repulsive in aspect. Their squalid mud ranchos are scattered pell-mell over this disreputable locality without any pretensions to order. We rode into the city, which seems a well-laid-out and agreeable place at its first aspect. We traversed long, straight streets of one-storied white houses with the usual prison-like grated windows looking on the street. Clear water flowed down every gutter. The streets here are paved with stone. On hearing the clanging of their hoofs on these, our horses became almost unmanageable in their alarm, and when they did quiet down a little, proceeded with steps gingerly and timid, as if red-hot iron was beneath their feet. We repaired to the Hotel de Europa, to which we had been recommended, and sent our horses to a stable to be looked after during our stay at Cordoba, with injunctions that they should be shod, another new experience for the poor beasts. The genial host of the Europa, who is a German, made us very comfortable in his excellently managed hostelry. End of chapter 11